let's start over. I, I am Noah Joyner, and, and again, again, Greg is just doing a great job, and I, I just commend you. Uh, if you have students at this church, get them involved with the student ministry here. Just a great blessing there. Um, my wife and I have the privilege of leading a small group. Uh, she does all of the stuff except for teaching, because uh, I can't really do anything other than that. God hasn't given me any gifts apart from those. Uh, so she takes care of all that, and I get to do all the fun stuff. So, um, And I get to teach on Sunday mornings in Life Change, and it is a blast. If you're not in Life Change, um, if you're in this service, that means that you usually come to this service. And that means that at 9 o'clock, you have like a big gap of time. Uh, my wife and I host a class, lead a class there. Uh, if you're not involved in a class, please come and be with us. Please, please, please. Uh, we're going to see in the book of uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, which I'm teaching this morning, the importance of life and doctrine. And that doctrine, uh, Paul says that doctrine is so important that you can't even do good works if you don't know it. Uh, so if you want to do good works, you need to know doctrine. Good thing we teach doctrine Sunday mornings. Uh, come and be with us 9 o'clock. Um, great teachers over there. Just get up a little bit early. So, my task this morning to move us very quickly through 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now, you might ask if you're new to North Wake, why in the world are we going to try and get through that many books in 35, 40 minutes? Um, and, and by way of illustration, uh, if you came to me and said, Noah, tell me your story, I'd start out by telling you where I was born, and then I'd probably tell you my brothers, my mom, my dad, tell you about them, and then I'd tell you about how I moved to Raleigh as a teenager, and then uh, came to know Christ while living there, then moved to Wake Forest to be here at this church, only church I've ever been to, best church in the world. I got to come here, be a part of this church, and then ended up being the student pastor here, and going to Southeastern, and all those things, and I'd, I'd catch you up, got married, have a couple of kids, I'd, I'd catch you up to where I am today. And in doing that, that would, all those major events and major themes would give you a good idea of who I am. And likewise, that's what we want to do with the scriptures, is we want to move through them quickly so you get a good idea of the major themes, uh, major developments and, and plot developments and plot moves and all those things so that you understand what the major theme of Scripture is, what the major story is, so that you can rightly interpret the other uh, important details there. So that's what we're doing. That's what we've been doing. Uh, We've been talking about the mission of God, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if somebody gave you a test, Larry passed out a test, and said, what's the mission of God? Do you think you'd be able to nail it? You probably could. Uh, But lucky for us, if you don't feel like that you can, within the passages that I'm teaching this morning is probably one of the clearest and concise explanations of the uh, mission of God. And that is going to show up in Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But by way of uh, introduction... Let's get to know Titus a little bit, his, his, his relationship with, with Paul. Paul's a church planter. He went around, planted churches. He was a uh, missionary apostle to the Gentiles, and so uh, he won many, many Gentiles. And uh, 
Titus is, is one of those guys. And so uh, he's at this church in Ephesus, and um, he's got problems. Uh, he's got, you guys ever seen like ugly churches? He's at one of these ugly churches where nobody gets along. They've got false teachers. Stuff's just going bad. And so the Apostle Paul writes to him uh, and, and, and encourages him. And, and wants to put him back on track and to correct those uh, folks that are there in the church. It's really interesting, the, what's called the pastoral epistles, being 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, all end with plural greetings. He says, you all, at the end of all of them. So it helps us to understand that these aren't really pastoral epistles. They aren't just written to pastors. They have a broader readership. So the people that these pastors minister to are, are intended in the audience. And so that, that kind of helps us to understand how we fit, because we're not all pastors. How do we fit in understanding this book? How does this book apply to us? So don't check out on me because they're pastoral epistles, but no, they're written for the good of those people uh, that Titus and Timothy were ministering to and, and for our good. So let's look and see what the mission of God is in Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 through 14 reads like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawless or from lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So the mission of God is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God is about the business of making a people for his own possession that are pure and who love to do good. Timothy gives us a picture of who this people is. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Uh, who this people is. Not who these people are, but who these people is. Hopefully it'll be clear when we get done here in a second. Terrible grammar as it is. Like Titus, Timothy is facing false teachers and division and um, just terrible stuff going on in his church. People are being led away from the faith because of the bad teaching that is happening there. So what he wants to do is Paul wants to write to them and help them to remember the priorities of God. And in chapter 2, he starts by saying, first of all then, and that points us to that he's letting them, and letting them know and reminding them these are God's priorities. First of all, of first importance. So in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, it says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Depending on what translation you're reading in front of you, uh, you may have the word people translated as men in verses 1 and 4. 
the word that's used there has a, a, a range of meaning that includes men and people. And I think that the, the word people is preferable for a, a number of reasons. Uh, first, it doesn't seem likely that Paul would argue or urge that pa- prayers be made for every human being for all people. It's just not possible for them to do. So the idea of all people uh, would, would be in view there. But that prayers be made for all different types of people, regardless of ethnic background, class, gender, nationality, those kind of things. Secondly, the idea of multinational prayers shows up um, in verse 2 when he says pray for kings and leaders and and the like. So he's he's saying not only pray for all these different peoples, but pray for those who oversee them and rule them and they're, they're magistrates. Thirdly, we see throughout the scriptures that God is willing and able to ensure that all types of people be saved and come to the knowledge of him. Uh, This idea of people, peoples, in this passage really jives with the mission of God that we've seen so far. And lastly, Paul says that for this reason, I was appointed an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so we have to ask the question of, well, what reason? Well, that God desires that all people be saved. So he sends them Paul. So the mission of God is to save all types of people from all nations. This is his desire. This is the deep longing and desire of God. So as those who are possessed by God, because we are God's possession, remember? We should have the same desire. How about you? Do you desire to see all types of people saved? Folks that live across town? Folks that are illegal immigrants? Folks that have a different God or believe that there is no God? The unbelieving guy that's dating your daughter, you want to see him be saved? The teacher that gives too much homework, you want her to be saved? (laughs) Terrorists, Chinese, Russian, Iranian... Afghani, Canadian, do you want all peoples to be saved? Or is there somebody, some group of people that you're not letting in on this grace? Or you secretly don't want to minister to those type of people? I think we all do. I think we all do. I think it's our fallen nature and our enmity with one another is, is creeping back in. But I think that if our desires were like God, then we would desire to see all people saved. He wants to use your prayers to save these people. He wants to use your prayers to stabilize fragile nations. Nations like ours. This seems very fragile right now. And right now you're tempted to believe that the ballot that you cast in November will offer more stability than your prayers. Your bipartisan prayers today do way more than any ballot that you cast will ever do. Pray for your leaders. Whether or not you like them, pray for them. Ask that God would use them to make our nation stable, that the gospel would go forward, and that the nations would be called unto God. God is winning the nations to himself. Get involved with that. Very simply, pray for the nations. Pick a map, point your finger, 
Pick a nation and pray for it. God will bless that. Pray for leaders. When you read in the newspaper about some crazy leader doing something somewhere, pray for him. Pray for Osama bin Laden. I mean, he's got a bunch of folks he's leading all around. They're doing stuff. Pray for him. Teach your kids to pray for people different than you. When your kids point out that that person is different than us, teach them to pray that God will win the nations. Just by way of, of highlighting some of that, um, there's a message from Together for the Gospel. You can go to t4g.org by a guy named Thabidi Anyabwile. And he makes an amazing argument for the, uh, the fact that there are, are no different races, that we're all one single race, but different ethnic groups within that. I don't have time to do that this morning, but it is amazing. Um, so do your best to go get that, t4g.org. Um, all right. If we go back to Titus, we see in verse 214, it says, not only is it God's desire to have a people for his own possession, but it says desire to purify for himself these people and that they would be zealous for good works. They love to do good. So he has a plan and a purpose for these people. Notice it's not only God's purpose to have a people, but to have them be holy. I believe the American church has believed the false prophets when they've said, God just wants you. He's not interested in your holiness. But it is indeed God's plan to have a people and to have them be holy. We believe the lie that, that God will take us as we are and leave us that way. It's true, God will take you as you are, but he's not going to leave you that way. He is going to make you something completely different. I think the American church has believed the lie that it is profitable to be rich. I don't have this on PowerPoint, but I think it's, we need to hit this. So in Timothy 6, verse 9, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You may know people that have left the faith, they've traded their God in for riches. He goes on to encourage the rich this way. Uh, and, and you should think of yourself as rich. When you hear rich in here, don't think richer than me. Um, we are the richest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, period. Uh, you are included in rich here. He says this, as for the rich in uh, 1 Timothy six seventeen, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's not the market that's uncertain. It's, it's not our, our economy that's uncertain. It's riches that are uncertain. On the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I think as American Christians, we've really believed the false prophets that 
The goal is to be rich, to build up a big 401k, a big old nest egg so I don't have to worry. But your riches are uncertain. My riches are uncertain. We believe the lie that for men to be humble is weakness. And we believe the lie that for women to be beautiful is all about what they wear, their purses, their clothes. And, and, and we genuinely believe this. I, I think that if we look in our closets, um, we, we see this. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, in verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul says, don't look in the mirror to see how beautiful you are. He says, look at your works. Look at what you do. Look at the way you serve. And he says, men, don't grunt and beat each other up. He says, pray Lift holy hands. Don't be angry. Don't quarrel. And I think that, um, I think, men, we should be marked more as men of prayer. Uh, next week you have an a assignment to come to corporate prayer. So lead your families well in that as men of prayer. So I think these are the lies that we've believed. So false prophets have creeped into our church, uh, and we need to be corrected. We need to be made holy. We need to lay our affections on doing good works. The rest of our time together um, is going to be me highlighting what the scriptures say about how it is that we move towards being people who are pure and who love good works. The first uh, line of defense, if you will, that I want to highlight is the role of godly leaders within the local church. Paul says to Titus in uh, Titus 2.14, he says, uh, no, let's, let's do uh, 1 Timothy 4.16, sorry. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Leaders in the local church are to watch their lives and doctrine closely because how they live and what they teach has bearing on the salvation of those who hear them. If you desire to be a pastor or an elder, a teacher of some sort, the way that you live your life and the way that you teach, if you're a father, um, the way that you do those things will have great bearing on the salvation of those who hear you. This is what I mean. How many people have abandoned the faith or avoided it altogether because of the moral failings of a pastor or elder or a dad? How many have been led into the fires of hell by the doctrines of false teachers? Just completely led astray, wholeheartedly wholeheartedly believing things that the scriptures do not teach to the extent that they would be separated from God for all eternity. What we teach and how we live are of great importance. As we consider what the life of a church leader should look like, Paul's letter to both Timothy and Titus, they give us a ton of insight. Um, Paul's really concerned with the health of the church. And one of his major prescriptions for a healthy church is healthy church leadership. 
And so he wants to show and tell what that should look like. If we uh, skip down to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So Paul is writing Timothy saying, this is what you want to look for. And if you aspire to the office of elder, and I think that that includes pastor, so seminary student, check yourself by this. Seriously. Um, these things should mark us. So he's very, Paul's very interested in this, in, in this type of uh, leader. He, he's uh, so interested in it that he writes the same thing similarly to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The problems that are happening in Crete, Paul says, appoint elders. Put guys in there who are going to correct these false teachers, who are going to defend the faith, who are going to say what's true. Six, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, You guys that are wanting to be pastors and... and, uh, desire that, I would encourage you, take this list home. Ask your wives, how am I doing here? Tell them to be honest. Um, I think that uh, you will be encouraged and challenged all at once. Uh, We need to be assessed uh, by these. As I studied this passage this week, I couldn't help but consider our elders here at North Wake. Uh, I've known the elders here for almost a decade and have served with many of them for years. Uh, It's just been a joy to do that. They've served my family well. Uh, just beautifully. Um, They've served your families well. They've served you well. And I know no more disciplined men. Uh, They're above reproach. They love their wives well. They're gentle fathers who lead their homes well. Uh, They're men who represent Christ well to our community. They submit well to one another. Humility and patience mark them all. They're always willing to give and open their homes. They love what is right. And they're all gifted teachers. And there's not a drunkard in the bunch. (laughs) There is probably an elder who should drive a little slower and wear his seatbelt. But um, but this just goes to show, this just goes to show that these men are not your example for Christ. Only Christ is your example. But these men are exemplary, exemplary and they are worthy of double honor. Uh, We should go out of our way to honor them and encourage them and and build them up. Uh, These men also help us to see what it looks like to live as sinful 
men, humans, in a fallen world while pursuing purity and good works by faith in Christ. God wants to use them on you and I for his great purposes. And I think he's already beginning uh, to do that. I know that he has for me. Paul's charge to Timothy is not to only watch his life, but to also watch the teaching or to watch his doctrine. It is the elder's job to ensure that the teaching and doctrine of a local church be the same as the teaching of Christ and his apostles. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 says this, Teach and urge these things. It's Paul talking to Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Also in 2 Timothy, he says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So elders are to be watchmen over doctrine within the local church. That when somebody starts teaching something that Jesus didn't teach, when someone starts teaching something that the apostles didn't teach, our elders should be the first ones to say, no, this is not the faith. This is not what uh, was taught to us by our Lord and Savior Christ and by his apostles. The elders go to great lengths to safeguard your souls. Uh, They are to be overseers. And what they oversee primarily is your souls. Hebrews tells us uh, that uh, they are going to have to give an account on the way that they oversaw your soul. And I hope that helps you to give a, uh, get a sense for how important these uh, men, this group of men is in your life and the way that you relate to God. Uh, they've done things like set up study serve, small groups, corporate prayer. They don't ask a lot of you. But they ask you to be all about the things that we're all about. There's not much we do. But the encouragement is to be all about those things because they are good for your soul. If you're involved in a small group, you know that. That it's good for your soul. If you're involved in study serve, you know this is good for my soul. If you've ever been to corporate prayer, you know this builds my soul. And that's why we do these things. I think the way that the Apostle Paul communicates with Philemon uh, in his letter to Philemon is really illustrative of how the elders relate to us and how we respond to them. By way of background, Philemon is a letter from Paul to Philemon. And Paul has met this guy in prison. His name is Onesimus. And Paul, of course, shares the gospel with the guy and he comes to know Jesus. And So Paul wants to send Onesimus back to Philemon because Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. He evidently had fled or left or something, ended up in jail, met Paul. So Paul wants to send him back to Philemon. Now he says, I want to send him back to you because he's useful to you. Uh, Really interesting that the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul wants to give something to Philemon that's useful for him, that's good for him, that will benefit him. I think similarly, uh, that's how our elders handle us. If we look at this verse here in uh, Philemon verse 8, it says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, 
Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, our elders are bold enough and have the authority to command us to do things. When we have, you know, slots open in our children's ministry and there's nobody there, I wholeheartedly believe because I've chosen to submit myself to these men, if they came to me and said, Noah, you're teaching, 9 o'clock, you know, three-year-olds, I would need to do what they said. But they don't handle us that way. They appeal to us in love. Larry sends us a, maybe a stern email that says, hey, this is really important. We need to have this as a priority uh, for the sake of our children because it's good for them. Be involved in this class. Or he sends us a little video you know, and says, hey, you guys should be involved in the men's retreat. So in love, he appeals to us. In love, the elders appeal to us, not commanding us. And I think it's very exemplary the way that they do that. But if you look in uh, 21, Paul is very confident that Philemon will be obedient. He says, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And this is your typical response to our elders. Uh, When they ask you to do something appealing in love, you're so eager to do it. And you do more than they ask. And I would encourage you in that. Uh, you, You guys excel in that and we can excel still more. God is already using these men uh, for his great purposes of holiness and a love for good works in our lives. Take a moment this week, uh, encourage an elder, the elders, uh, write them a note, a letter, send them an email, um, encourage them in word, cook them, you know, make them something, I don't know, whatever your love language is, however you roll. You know, uh, do, love on them, encourage them. Um, I think it will be good for you and for them. I pray for them that they would heed Paul's warning to watch their lives. Uh, the evil one would want nothing more than moral failings out of our elders. That you might be discouraged. Pray for them that that would not happen. The Apostle Paul uses his dying words to point out another means by which God is fulfilling his purpose of purity in his people. Paul is writing in Second Timothy to Timothy. It's his second letter. That's why it's called Second Timothy. Need how that works. Timothy is like a son in the faith to Paul. Uh, he's uh, he's like Jeff Doyle is to me. I mean, Jeff has like I mean, he all but led me to Jesus. I mean, he's just taught me in the faith and encouraged me and challenged me and kicks me in the pants. And you know, he's just he's just like a dad, you know. And, and that's really I think the relationship that Paul and Timothy have. And Paul's about to die. Uh, these are his last words, and he's writing this letter to Timothy. Saying, Timothy, stay in there. Get to work. Don't give up. Keep at it. And there are just beautiful words uh, that he writes to him. But he says this about the scriptures. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how your children have And how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here we see the role of the scriptures in the mission of God. God's mission is to save all types of people and to make them pure people for his possession who love to do good. Paul says that God's word makes you wise for salvation 
through faith in Christ. The scriptures correct your impure heart and get you ready to do good. Often we think that I'm, I'm born ready to do good. We have this false view of man that man is basically good. Like out of the package, he's, he's ready to do good. That's bad doctrine. Uh, you have believed the false prophets. But the Bible does not teach that. We are corrupt and evil. And we're out of the package ready to do good. Um, check out my kids. I mean, you have to teach them to do what is good. Um, and that's, that's the point here. Is that you need to be reminded and shown how to do good by the scriptures. My wife and I celebrated our fourth anniversary uh, this week. And it's just been such a joy to be uh, married to her. And as we kind of celebrated, I looked through our uh, wedding album. And there was all these pictures of her getting ready. And I was reminded of all that went into getting ready for this wedding. I think the preparation, the wedding preparation started sometime around 1985. I mean, my wife has been thinking about this thing for a long time. Um, And by the time that I saw her on our wedding day... She was ready to go. I mean, it was great. Um, She had put a lot of work into being beautiful for me. And often, when it comes to good works, I think we're like an unprepared wife. We show up with flip-flops on and sweatpants and, uh, you know, a wife beater. You know, you're just not ready for good works. You didn't do anything to get ready for it. It just showed up. It's like the wedding party showed up at your house and you're still in bed. Paul says that you need to get ready. No one would ever approach a wedding so flippantly, uncautiously. Good works are what you were made for. God's mission for you. This is your life. Get ready for it. You should expect daily that there are good works that are coming your way and you need to be ready for them by studying God's word, memorizing God's word, practicing God's word, putting it to work. God saved you for this, for this and nothing less, that you would be pure and that you would love good works and you will not be those things without your head in the scriptures and without the scriptures in your head. You must know them. So you can get started this week. You can get ready. Start by reading 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And in the words of my favorite pastor, you can do this. You can can read these things. You know, it's like two chapters a day. You know, you can can handle this. I mean, we, we gave you tapes, man. You can listen. Do it. Get in there. Get to know it. But you might be thinking, Noah, I'm really impure. I'm really, really messed up. This idea of uh, uh, unknown wretchedness, uh, that really describes me. You know, I've failed a lot, and, and I've tried to walk in purity and love doing good, but I've failed. I desire to be pure. I desire to do good. I desire to do pleasing things to God. But I've failed so often, and I am discouraged. My soul is just beat up. My failure has condemned me over and over again. The Apostle Paul um, knows of our temptation. God knows of our temptation to feel that way. Uh, And he has a word for you this morning. Titus 3, 1 through 8 says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You need to be reminded 
because you already forgot by the time I just told you. You need to be reminded to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is your story. This is about us all. We all were like that. We all spent our days in bad works. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He says, insist on the gospel. Insist on the fact that you were wretched and sinful and followed Satan and hated people and were hated by people. Insist on that. But insist that God in his grace made you his own and washed you up by the Holy Spirit. I don't know, uh, I don't know if there's anything you can be better washed with. I mean, you know, what can't the Holy Spirit scrub off? How can't he renew you? Your impurity is nothing compared to the renewing, puring effects and purpose of God and the Holy Spirit that Christ has poured out in you. So when you say to me, you sit in your chair and you think, but I'm just so messed up. Oh, the riches of grace, the grace of God that's being poured out in your life daily by the Spirit can deal with that, can handle that. You are a child of God. You are his possession. And it is his will that you be pure and love good works. So don't believe the lie that you can't. God has stopped at nothing to ensure the purity and salvation and love for good works of his people. He has pursued his mission to death and resurrection. As we look back at Titus 2 the passage that we started with, this mission of God. Let's look at it once again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus showed up, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Christ trains you how to be this. It doesn't just happen. You get trained. How do you get trained? Where do we see Jesus appearing? In the scriptures. By the scriptures, Christ trains you to be what it is that is his purpose for you to be, pure and holy. He says that in this present age that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we wait on Christ to come back, as Larry reminded us of last week, and that it is this Christ, our Savior, who is God, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. To what lengths has God gone to ensure that you would be holy, you would be pure, you would love good works? To what lengths has he gone to ensure that he would have a people of his possession? 
What lengths hasn't he gone? What more could he have done? He could not do more. He could not give any more of his life. Christ has given his life, bloodied and beaten, crucified and mocked, that you would be holy, pure, loving good works, that you would imitate your Savior and live the way that he did. The worst thing that you could do today would be to hear a message like this. It says, you are made to do good works. This is God's purpose for you. To hear a message like this and to just leave out the door and never make any commitment to walk in that, that would just be the worst thing that you could do. And I think there's a, a handful of ways to respond to a message like this. Maybe uh, you want your desire to be like God's, where you desire all people to come to know him. Or maybe God's pressing you uh, to be more willing to follow the leadership of the elders. And, and so you're thinking, man, I really need to be involved in a small group, or um, I really need to sign up for that membership class, or I, I, you know, I need to be involved in a life change class. Maybe you're really thinking that, and God's pressing you to do that, because you know he's been talking to you about it before, and it's just really coming to light now. You may be convicted that you need to spend more time in God's word, getting ready for what you were saved for. It might be that you need to faithfully trust in the finished work of Christ, to make you holy, to make you pure, to make you a person that loves good works. Maybe as simple as that. You may have never trusted in the finished work of Christ. Or you may need to trust it again for the 150th time this week, like me. So how do you respond? Well, a simple response would be to come here, pray. And I would encourage you to do that as God is pressing you. But a very rich and dynamic response to what God is asking you to do is to come here and to pray and ask God for grace that you might be what he has died for you to be. And you would stand up, you would go out of these doors and you would do that thing that you've committed to do. You'd read your word. You'd read God's word. You'd pray for the nations. You do that thing here at North Wake that God's asking you to do. You would flee riches. You would adorn yourself in good works rather than costly attire. I don't know what it is, but you do, and God's doing it. So if you hear Him speaking to you today, do not harden your heart, but respond in the grace that He's extending to you. Let us pray. Father, I do ask.